0: Hey everyone, welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. We got ourselves a new intro song.
1: Yeah, we changed it up. We changed we new it little, up. A intro song in there. And uh, dude, I'm super excited to get into this one. I don't even know what it is. But before we do get into it. You know, Wait,
0: you didn't say your name. No, that's me, Patrick. They know it's me. And that's me, Courtney. I
1: apologize. I am getting ahead of myself because I'm super excited right now. I mean Calm I'm down excited. there, Sparky. Uh, my bad, it's been a long week, so I'm excited to you know, kind of put this down. Um so yeah, one thing we're, we're excited about was that uh, you know, when we first started the podcast, we didn't realize how much of a community there was, right? So it's yeah. it's such a super supportive and awesome community to make friends with all these people all over the world. Um specifically today, we wanted to shout out Brad and Denise. Uh, I believe they're from Canada. Yeah. And they uh they have their podcast, World's True Crime, which uh is pretty awesome. I listened to it the other day when I drove to Austin. Oh yeah, they're badass. Uh, we and, love uh, you guys. They, they definitely cover like crazy stuff all over the world. I watched I listened to one from like China, Afghanistan. I think I had one in Russia I was listening to. Cases
0: I've never heard of. Cases
1: I've never ever heard of. That's why I so love it. it's them. pretty awesome. So for y'all, we got a little clip of uh intro they sent us. So y'all go ahead and take some time and give them a listen real quick. Hello everyone, my name is Brad. And I'm Denise. We
0: are the hosts of World's True Crime Podcast.
1: Every week, I will give Denise, who happens to be a true crime newbie, a case to research and study.
0: And together, we'll go over it with all of you. So please join us for a new episode every week at World's True Crime Podcast, which is available on all platforms to download and enjoy.
1: So remember everyone, the world is not always as it seems. If y'all just heard from them, go check out World's True Crime. I know I'm going to listen to a few more episodes. They had some crazy ones I'm looking forward to. So shout out to them. Now with that, Courtney, I think it's your turn to get us into this evil pudding shit show that we're about to dive into.
0: <laughs> I know. I'm excited about this one. <laughs> this is going to be a good one. Um, it's going to, I had to, as usual, work not to make it a two-parter. So I'm going to, I don't think we have any business to attend to, do we?
1: Uh, no, I would just probably throw a normal disclaimer out there that if you don't like violence and murder and mayhem. Then we're not,
0: we're not the podcast for <laughs> might you. might want
1: to try the kids channel or easy listening. I,
0: I will say this next week, super stoked. We're taking a break from true crime.
1: It's two weeks from now.
0: No, next week. Is it next week? Mm-hmm. We're taking a break from true crime. I'm not telling you what it is because you remember it's a case that I just told you I started oh, last right. night. It's yeah.
1: Actually, our next two episodes are really awesome. We're <gasps> doing I'm that so excited, this, guys. The true crime around a little bit, mm-hmm. and the week after that, we're doing a special episode. where we're actually—I mean, I'm not going to tell them who. No,
0: don't tell anybody.
1: But we're actually going to do an interview.
0: Surprise guest.
1: I have a surprise guest on, and we're just basically going to have you know back and forth interview with him the whole time.
0: I'm so excited for that. That's I'm nervous. Be awesome. I'm excited.
1: That is going
0: to be awesome. I'm nervous, mostly, but that's
1: okay. We'll have fun with it. We'll have fun with it.
0: (laughs) We'll have fun with that. What's the worst that could happen? Well, I can tell you the worst that could happen, but it's okay. (laughs) Let's get into this, guys. All right. November. Picture it. November 1979. At a motel just two blocks from Times Square in New York City, the fire department responded to a 911 call about... Smoke coming from the fourth floor of one of their motel rooms. Firefighter James Rogers reached room 417 at the Travel Motor Lodge and he felt the doorknob, as you do. It was white hot. He busted down the door and was met with a thick wall of dark smoke. Inside the, rooms, inside the room were two twin beds and he noticed a lifeless body lay on each bed respectively. So two beds... A body on each. Two bodies. Okay. James grabbed one of the bodies on the bed closest to the door first. He would later say in an interview with the New York Daily News, I carried her out of the door and put her down on the hall floor. I was preparing to give mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, which is standard procedure, when I realized there was no head.
1: Yeah, that's not standard procedure. (laughs) I'm just going to throw that out (laughs) there.
0: The second victim also had been decapitated. Rogers, a member of the fire department for 15 years, had to go had to undergo trauma counseling for the horrors he saw in that seedy motel room that November day. I imagine he did. Bless
1: his heart. Can you imagine the shock? Like you already no, know, you're, you're <laughs> kicking down the you know your firefighter, or your police officer, you do these things, you bust down this door that you know there was fire. You yeah. See the bodies in there, so That's like, bad you're, enough. You're instantly, exactly. You're instantly yeah. like, oh crap. So you just want to get them out of the smoke, yeah. get them out of the fire. You take them out and you're about to do mouth to mouth and CPR. and You look down and the damn thing, no. the damn head is missing.
0: No. You just might as well kill me that Bro. day. Bro.
1: Bro. Bro. Bro.
0: So what happened to those mutilated girls? Who are they? And who could have done something like this? Today, my friends, we are talking about Richard Cottingham. He is better known as the Torso Killer or the Times Square Strangler.
1: The Torso the Killer? The
0: Torso Killer.
1: What the actual <laughs> fuck what kind of name is
0: that? Sometimes I just like to go in for the kill and describe a gory crime scene right off the bat before I have you warmed up. Oh, you
1: got me hooked. <laughs> you already got me hooked off of this apartment because his name is the Torso Killer. Like He doesn't kill limbs or heads. So, just torsos.
0: So it's really weird. Uh, We're <laughs> going in dry today. <laughs> Early life. Let's start off with Richard's early life because that's he,
1: what we do.
0: He's an intriguing little weasel. We gotta
1: see the recipe that made the evil pudding.
0: Absolutely, hell yeah. Okay, Richard Cottingham was born on November twenty fifth, nineteen forty six. He's a Scorpio, just like me, in the Bronx, New York City. Why do you have New so York, many similarities
1: sorry. to all these damn cereal killers? I don't. They're starting to scare
0: me. I don't, but there's not a lot of Scorpio you would think because we're shady. Scorpios You're are me scary,
1: You're me.
0: but there's not a lot of Scorpio serial killers, actually. Surprisingly enough, you'd think there'd be way more. Maybe we just don't get caught. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so he was born in, on November 25th, 1946 in the Bronx. He had a fairly typical New York childhood. Nothing really stood out. There wasn't a lot I could really dig up regarding anything remarkable in his younger years. In fact, I couldn't even find his parents' names. It was really hard to research his younger years. Anyways, Richard grew up in a normal middle-class household as one of three siblings. His mother was a homemaker who was, by all accounts, a loving, doting mother. And Richard's father worked in insurance. When Cottingham was in the seventh grade, so about 12 years old, his family moved to Rivervale, New Jersey, a small township in Bergen County. Is that how you say it? You're from New Jersey? Bergen? I'm
1: not from Jersey. I was born in Jersey. Is so it Bergen or know. Bergen? I don't even know that county, honestly. B
0: E R G E N. I think Jersey, it's I don't know
1: North I think Jersey it's too. Bergen
0: County. It was an ideal it was idyllic then and it remains that way today. In 2007, Rivervale was ranked number 29 on the list of Money Magazine's 100 best places to live. So Richard didn't have it too rough growing up.
1: No, not
0: at all. Cottingham attended the private St. Andrew's Parochial School, but he did struggle making friends. He was pretty introverted and he just kind of liked to be alone, hang out with his family. That again doesn't make you a bad person. <laughs> no,
1: I, not, not one bit.
0: He did, however, have a few solitary hobbies. This is kind of weird. One of which was raising homing pigeons. He did that for fun. I had to look it up, but that's when you raise pigeons that know how to, like, return back to where they live, I believe. So they would fly back home if you let them go, I think. I'm not sure. I'm not a pigeon person.
1: but a Pigeon expert? <laughs> I'm not a
0: pigeon expert. <laughs> Richard then started high school at uh, Paskick Valley High, and he finally was able to make a few friends there. Now, in that friend group, Richard was the clear leader We're going to see that he's already honing his manipulation and control tactics. He's a huge control freak. Former classmate Richard Newman recalled of Cottingham, and this is a quote from classmate Richard. I met Richard on the athletic field. Richard stood apart in that he wasn't always at practice. He wasn't a joiner. He didn't really have a nickname like the rest of us, and he wasn't part of our little clique. He had kind of a wise guy attitude about him. I don't think he was crazy about authority, I believe. Then Newman would go on to say that when Richard spoke about women, it was always in a demeaning way. You see, Richard wasn't interested in the typical high school romance. He had kinks. They all do. (laughs) Well, it would eventually go beyond kinks, but we will get there. He was infatuated with big-breasted brunettes. That was his thing. (laughs) Okay. His former classmate recalls it being all he would speak about in the locker room. Still, not a lot of red flags there. He's a teenage boy. Teenage you know? boy
1: likes big boobs.
0: and Yeah, and he has a blonder brunette preference. I mean, not a big deal.
1: Nothing crazy there.
0: While it's normal for everyone to have their preferences, like we said, Richard took it way too far. In Cottingham's case, that intense fascination with big breasts would become what's called a paraphilia. So... Big breasts were absolutely necessary for his arousal. A paraphilia is, by definition, a condition characterized by abnormal sexual desires, typically involving extreme or dangerous activities. For example, necrophilia is a paraphilia. Does that make sense now? Like, Ted Bundy, his paraphilia was necrophilia? Yeah, so it's nonspecific. It's Just nonspecific, saying, you know, but it's harmful, severe, like, and it's very very outside, extreme, yeah. Wild
1: sexual desires.
0: Yeah, that's involving like non-consensual sex, you know, like you you only get off if you do one of those things. So not healthy. (laughs) So for Richard, the breasts would eventually be his calling card, if you will, amongst other things. He would mutilate his future victim's breasts. So that's why it's important that we're kind of touching on that so early on. I'm not trying to be just weird. Well...
1: It's weird. It's weird. It's weird.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, where did this paraphilia come from? Well, Cottingham later, of course, blamed porn. Okay,
1: Bundy.
0: Just like I just I, that was next to my notes. A lot like Bundy did in his interviews after he was caught. However, Cottingham got his hands on a different kind of porn. Apparently, back in Cottingham's day, there was a magazine called Adventure Magazine. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, I didn't either. It depicted, this is crazy. It depicted sadistic se- sexual Nazi torture techniques.
1: Oh. <laughs> I guess. There's a magazine dedicated to sadistic sexual Nazi <laughs> torture. I think Nazi it just torture.
0: maybe was a feature or maybe like a monthly special. <laughs> I don't
1: know. I don't think it was dedicated for to sadistic it. Sadistic sexual Nazi torture? That's really Richer. concerning. Richard. Richard. Well, I mean, if there's more than him, that's really concerning that <laughs> that was even a thing. <laughs> like I said, I didn't
0: really. I didn't look too much into it, didn't feel like it, didn't want to, ain't gonna.
1: I'm not gonna end up on a watch list for doing that, so no.
0: You get the point. (laughs) He was into some raunchy stuff really early on. However, although he was creepy and weird, he had not yet harmed anyone. But that's the thing about psychopaths with intense fantasies. They will eventually escalate. But as for now, he's not hurting anyone. Yeah,
1: but we see it in every case. (laughs) We've talked about it almost every episode. Yeah. It always starts out with... And just escalates, right? It always usually starts out with small theft or property crime, then it escalates to physical violence, and it escalates to rapes. And it you always see run. an escalation.
0: Yeah. So you get somebody with a kink, not a big deal, but if if after they're it. a psychopath, then that kink's going to escalate.
1: Yeah. Escalate, after so long doing whatever you're doing to mm-hmm. satisfy that urge or that kink, it's not enough, and you got to escalate it. You got to escalate it. You got to escalate it.
0: So Richard wasn't exactly normal, even though he more or less appeared that way from the outside. He's escalating mm-hmm. on the inside. He graduated from high school in 1964 and immediately got a job at his father's insurance company, MetLife, which actually used to be the insurance company with Charlie Brown and Snoopy on the commercials. Just fun fact.
1: Don't they still have a float and Thanksgiving Day parade for they do. for mm-hmm. Snoopy?
0: They do. I think so. Caught, mass <laughs> so sorry, I have that. a few of those in here, actually. <laughs> Cottingham was actually making some good money. Get this. Right out of high school, Richard Cottingham was making the equivalent of 100K a year. 18 year old kid.
1: Today's money? In today's money. okay.
0: Yeah, that's insane.
1: 100K back then would have been like.
0: Oh my God, yeah. Soon Cottingham got bored. And after two years with MetLife, he went to work for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Greater New York. He was now working in Midtown Manhattan, and he even got his own cute little apartment in a place called Little Ferry, New Jersey. So it really seemed he had it all going for him. But Richard had some sexual demons stirring inside him that refused to let him sit still. He had to act out eventually. Richard was known to have been sleeping with prostitutes during this time, but after a while, it just wasn't cutting it anymore. Mm-hmm. He needed something more to satisfy himself. And that brings us to his first known murder, a murder that he committed before he turned 21. Great. Yeah. So on Friday, October 27th, 1967, 29-year-old Nancy Vogel of Little Ferry, New Jersey, kissed her husband of nine years goodbye and left him with their baby so she could head down to St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church to play bingo with her girlfriend. Hell yeah. Why doesn't anybody play bingo anymore that sounds uh, super fun
1: do but it's just like on like your phones with each other oh. or with friends and I want to go somewhere and play bingo and scrabble and all. you do it all yeah, on your phone yeah like that's true like y'all do with pool with us oh yeah you know, that's true invitations to play freaking pool on my phone all I the love time playing pool
0: I know I play it with them too <laughs> so Nancy's husband waited up for her but she just never returned which was extremely out of character for her she was a loving wife and mom The next morning, Nancy's husband called the police early. An initial search just turned up nothing. The weekend came and went. However, the following Monday, two 12-year-old girls were looking out their bedroom window down onto the street below when they saw what looked like a, this is a quote from them, a waxy mannequin setting up in a parked vehicle. It's never A mannequin. I've learned that in all of these cases. Dead bodies look like mannequins. Yeah, they do. The way they
1: just sit there, they're lifeless and motionless. Yeah,
0: motionless. So the girls went down to investigate and upon closer inspection saw it was indeed a body. They ran to get the help of a neighbor who called the police. Inside the 1960 Rambler, police found Nancy Vogel beaten, raped, and strangled. She was nude with her hands tied in front of her with a thin nylon cord. She had never made it to the bingo game, and the trunk of her car were packages from the nearby mall, so it looked like she had gone shopping before she met her gruesome death. Police went on to speak to Nancy's friend, whom she was supposed to meet at bingo that Friday night. The friend confirmed Nancy never showed up. Unfortunately, Nancy's case went cold, and it would remain cold for another 40 years. Crazy. Four zero, that's That's, that's, with no answers. Little did anyone know at the time, but Nancy was familiar with Richard. Both lived in Little Ferry. Cottingham most likely had approached her at the mall, and they were friendly. While the details aren't known, it was certain that Nancy had been killed inside her vehicle, then Cottingham most likely had driven it to a different location to avoid it being found immediately. Now, Cottingham was your typical narcissist. At first, he was super anxious about the police tying him to this crime. But as enough time passed, he began to feel invincible. Cottingham could not help but brag once he got comfortable. Back at work, remember he works at Blue Cross? He shared a console with a man named Dominic Volpe. Volpe would later say, and this is a quote, he talked about crazy things, but we never thought he could do crazy things. I get chills on my arms thinking about it now, 35 years later. It was a shock. He was very upfront about it, bragging about prostitutes, S&M, gambling, all of his vices he bragged about. He liked the slave thing, the handcuffs. So Cottingham basically admitted to his crimes but nobody took him seriously or paid any attention because he was just so out there and just, odd. He's
1: just weird and crazy. He's yeah. All stuff. He's not saying I strangled and beheaded people. He's mm. just like, I like kinky sex. I like to handcuff him and thank him. Well, out. no,
0: he does. He actually confesses to a number of these crimes to them. But everyone's like because, you know, they talk about it just at work. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so went missing and they found her tied up? Dah, dah, dah. And he'd be like, yeah, I did it. And Everyone's like, Ha. Ah.
1: Yeah. That's really weird to me, because at what point where that happens numerous times... Are you like, oh, do I need to call, to call someone? like, yeah, i do that. And like, are you claim the last three? Okay, let me just make a phone call. <laughs> let me call drink. someone. Is this dude claiming, like, multiple fucking murders? Yeah,
0: I know. It gets, it gets, I mean, it gets to the point in this story where I'm like, how did none of you call anyone? Co-workers.
1: Oh, oh kind of like every. Everybody One mm-hmm. that we, we covered. Listen listened to. I listened to this is another sidebar. I listened to another podcast. Uh it was actually late out. Mm-hmm. And they talked about I listened to the pig farm killer.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pinkton. Yeah. And Willie you know Pinkton. how many
1: times the cops looked at him and did nothing? Actually, they didn't even do anything because of where they were. The cops just because it was prostitutes.
0: Yeah, they don't care. When the cops prostitutes.
1: waited until 30-something people were be missing
0: too. Yeah. before
1: they started to do anything. It's like, how many yeah. of these crimes could have been stopped when these cops actually did their fucking job for once? No,
0: look at the, um...
1: I mean, it's, it's the same thing The Butcher Baker yeah, episode but that, we did. It's about the same thing with, yeah. you know, our boy up in Alaska. hmm It's the same thing with Bundy. It's the same thing with... There's so many of them that cops could have intervened at some point, and they just didn't. I know. it's disgusting. Especially the guys mm-hmm. in, the guys who were targeting hookers and prostitutes.
0: Yeah. And this was like, especially the law enforcement of the 70s and 80s. It's like, you guys, are y'all trying?
1: <laughs> it makes me think that everybody thought it was really like Mayberry. Like, yeah,
0: because hey. they, they did, I think. So the next major thing that happened in Richard's life, someone actually married him.
1: <laughs> well, they don't
0: know that he's a murderer. No, they
1: don't. Maybe they got some kinks, too. I don't
0: know. No, she didn't. I don't like her, but that comes later. In May of 1970, Richard married a woman named Janet. Wow, well, that's your problem. What her name's Janet? That's that's a problem. I don't know. I was just making. It. <laughs> <best>, I'm like, <laughs> who hurt you named Janet? No
1: one. I just felt like saying that because I equated it to Karen.
0: I, I Poor know. Janet.
1: I know some names. I know some Janets. They're really lovely people.
0: <laughs> Not this Janet.
1: Not this one. Apparently,
0: I guess <laughs> we all like her. He was 23 at the time, and she was, of course, a voluptuous brunette. With curves in all the right places. <laughs>
1: it's a big boob brunette.
0: Exactly, just his type. The couple moved into an apartment called Ledgewood Terrace in Little Ferry, New Jersey. Fun fact: Little Ferry is the birthplace of Buddy Valastro. He's the cake boss on the Food Channel, Food Network. Is it Food Network? Food, yeah, food Network. Yeah.
1: Because it's always buddy cake versus
0: stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Anyways, he was still <laughs> so random.
1: Random insert <laughs> for the episode. <laughs>
0: He was still working at the insurance company and doing very well at the time. Tension soon started to bubble within the marriage. There's little trouble in paradise. Then, weirdly, Cottingham was arrested and convicted of shoplifting. Remember, he's making good money. Yeah, it's not about the need. Yeah, no, we know that. He was convicted of shoplifting in September of 1972. We see this often with serial killers, like Pat was saying. Even after they... Are already killing. Yeah, I, it,
1: that, that urge, yeah, that, that power. They need that, and he's not killing anybody right now. He's married. Yeah, he's to live a normal life. So that's the only thing he can do.
0: I really think it's like a restlessness that takes over their body, and he definitely had ample money to buy the things that he needed without stealing.
1: You know, you equate it to like a drug addict. It's like they need a fix. They don't care what kind of fix it is or how they get their fix. They're yeah. always going mm-hmm. to escalate because it's going to need more, but they'll take whatever they can get to you know satiate that need.
0: The punishment for his crime was to pay a $50 fine. It's weird. I mean, it was more back then. I was about
1: to say, it's probably paying like $500 now.
0: Yeah. Janet was not happy, but she stuck it out with him. Then there came all the affairs and all the prostitutes. Behind Janet's back, he had numerous affairs and would often purchase prostitutes in Times Square. He wasn't getting what he needed from Janet in the bedroom. I'm sure she didn't want to be... Tied up and tortured during sex.
1: Yeah, she was like, oh, you got a weird obsession with big boobs. She probably thought he was like a motorboat and son of a bitch. <laughs> oh and this guy's <laughs> over here. He, he wants like... Who hired people. you? No one. I didn't, I didn't go through an interview process. If I, was I know. Somebody just gave me this job and said, do Somebody it. Somebody
0: gave know. me this job. I'm going to report you to HR.
1: I think I'm technically HR. You, you are, are, you are, you, you are.
0: <laughs> so... Oh my God! In September of seventy-three, one month before their firstborn child—or their first child was born—sorry, Richard assaulted, sodomized, and robbed a seventeen-year-old prostitute. He was arrested, but the woman failed to show up for court, so the case was dismissed. Ever the dutiful wife, Janet stuck by his side. I'm sure he also said. You know, I didn't do it. You know, I'm not guilty of this. And, of course,
1: it was dropped, right? she didn't show up. So she was like, oh, of course you didn't Of course I
0: didn't. I'm innocent. Why would she show up? So Cottingham had called his wife, caused his wife, a lot of grief during the three years that they had been married. So to make up for it, he basically bought his wife and new baby, a nice three-bedroom home in, is it Lodi, New Jersey? Lodi? Sure. Lodi? It's not Lodi. That doesn't sound right. I mean, it's
1: Lodi, California. So that yeah, Lodi, that's why I, I
0: um There they would welcome their second son in 1975 and their daughter in 76. After the birth of his last child, he began an extramarital affair with a woman named Barbara Lucas. This relationship actually lasted a while. It didn't end until 1980, so it lasted a good four years. You can bet that in his free time, Richard was out killing and raping where he found the time between three kids a job a wife and a mistress I'll never know but he did
1: <laughs> but it was also you know that time period it wasn't uncommon for you know I don't know the whole story obviously but it wasn't uncommon for guys to just be like hey I'm going to Going over to so and so's, we're going to play yeah. for hours or whatever. I'd be gone for hours at a time, and right. the wives never thought anything. They just took care of the kids. Exactly. It was that nuclear family, wife stays at home. Bullshit. You stay at home,
0: yeah, and I'm out until wee hours and, he, and yeah, don't exactly. ask questions. And it's, no,
1: and it's like a, it's, it's a cultural norm back mm-hmm. then. Yeah. So for him to be gone, it gives him plenty of ample. Time. I mean, nowadays it'd be weird. Yeah. To like really have a family and be involved with them, and just if I just disappeared for four hours at night, you'd be Mm-mm. like, once you'd be like. Where the fuck did you go? Mm-hmm. You left so me with these it, four kids. What doing are you it every thinking? Every day you'd be like, "Uh, hold the fuck on, guy." Like, yeah. What are you doing
0: here? <laughs> I have four kids. When they were little, you just left the house. I'm like, "When are you are you almost done?"
1: <laughs> when they were little, you would me at work, and you'd be like, when are you leaving? are,
0: you when you are you almost done." Are you <laughs> How home? bad do we really need money?
1: <laughs> like, I couldn't even go to like the gas station on the way home because you'd be like, "Hurry <laughs> up!" <laughs> You're <They're> scary. <laughs>
0: I'm just kidding. They're asking for more stuff. They're getting (laughs) restless. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So (sighs) Cottingham would later say that sometimes, he said this, sometimes I go out with girls for two or three months, then we just part ways. But sometimes I would kill them. (laughs) I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's making me very uncomfy. He said, and I quote, sometimes I would kill them and no one would know anything. So, he'd either dump him or Whoa. kill him. One of the two. Holy shit,
1: this dude's like
0: Yeah, he's he's messed up. I guess we can't accuse him of having low self-esteem. <laughs> he does what you're going to I don't know if we've covered another series. I'm trying to wrap my brain. But this guy has what's called a god complex. I, I,
1: have Every we, serial killer has a
0: god no, no, not all of them do. I disagree with that. He, he loves having the it's not just the control it's beyond control like your your fate is in his hands he, that's what he gets off Butcher baker. but to the point where he won't let he won't kill all of his victims no you're right Butcher baker left some but i think i don't know if he has a same he they that, seem different to me
1: they are different but he had that god complex like he's 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 torturing him. He's doing what he wants to him. Yeah, and he takes him out in the middle of nowhere, Alaska. And hunts like, him. He hunts him. Like he literally has a god complex. He thinks he's no. He's better. I, I agree Ted with Bundy that he has a good god complex because he just laughs at everybody. So? He thinks he's smarter than everybody. He thinks he's better than everybody. I know he's a narcissist, but yeah, but he's like he's at that level where it's basically a god complex. Like, no one is on his level to him.
0: This guy, I think, maybe just has more of one than we've seen in the past. Maybe I'm wrong,
1: but we'll get into it. Oh, this dude definitely got some shit going.
0: Yeah, on. Yeah, he's sure. he's a. I, I'm gonna get more. I'm gonna break him down psychologically in a little bit, and because this one's just fascinating, fascinating. We'll got to What's okay. Going? One year after his youngest was born in December of 1977, 26 year old X ray technician Marianne Carr went missing from her Ledgewood Terrace apartment. By the way, Richard had lived there with his right wife right after they were married, which is probably where he spotted her. Marianne's husband was out of town, and she had plans to meet with her mother-in-law after work, but she never showed up. Lieutenant Alan Grieco would later say, "...there did not appear to be anything broken in the apartment, and we had no indication at all as to what had happened." So nothing's out of place. She's just gone.
1: Yeah, and it's the, it fits the time, the era. Mm-hmm. Like, people could knock on, you know, everyone knocked on your door. door were the salespeople. If you knew them or if you'd seen them around your apartment complex, which you probably had before, mm-hmm. you could just go into the guys of like, hey, I need some help. Can I can I ask you for some help real quick? Or do you know, you know what I mean? But they'll still, yeah. everybody would answer. Everybody was so friendly and open to answer the door. They were like, hey. So it wouldn't look like anything was out of place because it's not like he's just smashing in the door.
0: They don't do like me. And when the doorbell rings, I go and hide <laughs>
1: I know, the (laughs) doorbell rings here, the dogs go crazy, Courtney hides, and I got, like, two guns pointed at the door. No,
0: uh, that's not true. Pizza
1: on the floor and walk away. But it makes
0: me so (laughs) mad when somebody rings the doorbell and the dogs lose their mind, and then it's some guy wanting to, like, sell a vacuum or something. I know they have a job to do,
1: but... It's the roofing, guys. uh,
0: Drives me nuts. So... A witness, a neighbor of Marianne's, did, however, see Marianne speaking to a man the day that she disappeared outside her apartment. The neighbor said that the man looked an awful lot, lot like Marianne's husband. Little did investigators know at the time, but Cottingham bared a striking resemblance to Mr. Carr, who would soon be cleared of all suspicion. On that December. Sucks, yeah.
1: looking at her husband like and he he's did.
0: struggling with he's, his, his wife was just being mm-hmm.
1: murdered or kidnapped. And- they're like, oh, you did it because the dude looked like you. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's fucked up. But they have to always look at the husband first, That's always right?
1: the first person they look at, the closest people to the victim. And it
0: sucks when they're innocent. Little did invest. Yeah, I read that part. On December 16th, 1977, Mary Ann Carr's body was found in the parking lot of the Quality Inn Motel. She had been callously dumped between the curb and the chain link fence surrounding the motel parking lot. Nobody knows exactly how Cottingham was able to lure Marianne into his vehicle, but he did, and without a fight. Maybe he pulled a Ted Bundy, where he feigned an injury. That's what I'm saying.
1: Everybody back then was so eager to be like, or so friendly, like, "Hey, I need help." They'd be like, "Oh, sure, I've seen you around yeah. here before." Yeah. You know, well, treasure.
0: yeah. Yeah. Hey, neighbor, you're my old neighbor.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I need help with this, or I'm, I'm hurt. I'm like, my wife's hurt.
0: Can you come and help me? Was you're a nurse.
1: Goes back to your saying during Ted Bundy. Don't help people.
0: This is why we don't help people. (laughs)
1: Don't
0: do it! After raping and torturing her in uh, in a motel room, he discarded her. Grieco recalled that she had ligature marks on her wrists and the ankles from the handcuffs. And she also had ligature marks on her neck, indicating strangulation. Mutilation to her breasts were apparent. That's his calling card. It would be years, unfortunately, before investigators could make note of this as Cottingham's calling card. But we're gonna see that over and over and over more and, than we'd like.
1: And if you don't know what ligature marks are, if you never heard that term before,
0: oh yeah, sorry.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's just basically you could tell that they were you know, tied up. So when you're tied up and you're it's that tight, you're just gonna leave rope burns, marks, indentations, and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And the body won't heal. sometimes was, even cut the skin. Yeah, and when the body dies, it won't heal. So. That's
0: the left leg of her work uniform pants had been cut and creepily, her hair had been cut. Hair trimmings were found all over her white pants leg. So he just tortured her and humiliated her.
1: See, I'm laughing because in my head, I'm like, this dude is doing this. He's like, you need a fucking haircut. And starts cutting her hair. Like, but I didn't even, I thought of it like, I don't know why the haircut was innocent in my mind. No, it's not innocent. Like, playful. He's like, torturing yeah. her, oh, yeah, yeah.
0: humiliating her. In my her. mind, yeah. I'm like, her shoes, coat, and purse were all missing. After the discovery of Marianne, police were starting to find multiple victims of sexual assault near the airport, either along the side of the road or in hotel rooms. Some, but not all of these women, were prostitutes. But all of them did have something in common. They all been tortured in a similar way slowly but surely police were starting to connect the dots and determining that this has to be the work of a serial offender. Remember this is NYC, so they see some shit on a daily basis. When is this? Um 1977?
1: Yeah. Okay. This is an interesting case that I want to keep on mind for future episodes. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I agree. Hint hint for the upcoming episode after next. <laughs> Especially during this era, they saw some shit. Yeah,
1: they saw some crazy
0: shit. So I don't think it was easy to make connections, you know, as it is for us armchair detectives. Plus, this was also about 13 years before DNA,
1: I believe. Oh, yeah. It's so easy to analyze. It's 40 years later when you have all the evidence and all the information. You know what I mean? It's not.
0: Yep. On September 23rd, 1978, it was time for Cottingham to satisfy his sick urges again. And pregnant Karen Schlitt. Try to say her name, Schlitt. I that's like easy. it. Schlitt's so my liquor. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, that's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I got that one covered.
0: Karen Schlitt would be his next unlucky victim. Karen worked at a Ruby Tuesday's bar Oops. and grill. I
1: haven't seen a Ruby Tuesday's. <laughs> I know it's been for like forever. Years. Holy shit. Okay.
0: <laughs> on Third Avenue. After work, Karen decided to sit and relax and have a few drinks before leaving. It was there that she met a man who called himself John Schaefer. He seemed nice enough, so they chatted for a while, but then he got weird, and he asked her if she was a working girl. A hooker. Karen was really easygoing, and she laughed laughed it off, and she said no, but Schaefer persisted. Finally, she started to just get an eerie feeling from him and decided to leave. She put down her drink and left the bar planning on heading back to her apartment when all of a sudden she started to feel woozy and super sick. Mm. 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 Which is odd, because she hadn't drunk nearly enough for that to happen. Roofied. Mm -hmm. She actually could feel herself start to black out when John Schaefer pulled up beside her and asked her if she needed a ride. She was far too sick to refuse, so she accepted by the way, John Schaefer is Cottingham, if you haven't guessed it. Pretty sure we okay. gathered that
1: in the too. I'm so. sure you yeah, gathered that. Put that part
0: Well, as soon as uh, Karen got in the car, she passed out. When she woke up, she noticed that they were on the New Jersey Turnpike. Cottingham was forcing three blue and red capsules into her mouth and forcing her to swallow them. She soon felt a burning pain on her breast before she passed out again. Little Ferry police officers found Karen barely alive the next morning at 9 a.m. in a drainage ditch behind the Lakeview Terrace Apartments. He really likes that apartment complex, doesn't he? Her shirt was pulled up, exposing her mutilated breasts, this time covered in cigarette burns. Her pants were undone and pulled down around her ankles. Her coat, scarf, and purse were all missing. Police immediately started CPR, bringing her back from the brink of death. And she finally woke up in her hospital bed, but was unable to recall much of anything from the night before. Those pills she had been given, they were old school date rape drugs called tuanol. It was around before rohypnol became a thing. She also had traces of secobarbital in her system, which is one of the most commonly used means of physician-assisted suicide. Yeah, it was actually linked to the famous death of uh, Judy Garland back in the day. So, needless to say, it was a miracle she was still alive. She'd been through some shit. Yeah, no shit. Unfortunately, since she couldn't remember much, her case would grow cold. The first thing I thought about is okay, there must have been eyewitnesses at the bar that saw her and Cottingham speaking because they were there a while. But it was later determined that he was wearing a shaggy wig and a whole like costume.
1: Oh, he, was, he had a whole lot yeah. going on.
0: He was unrecognizable before he abducted her. Unfortunately, Richard would still remain free to strike again without any suspicion surrounding him, and another woman would soon have an encounter with Cottingham, but at least she would live to tell about it. On October tenth, 1978, Cottingham approached Susan Grieger, a prostitute, and offered her $200 cash for sex. Unfortunately, she was all booked up for the night, so she gave him her number and asked him to check back with her the following day for she, availability.
1: check her fucking Outlook schedule in <laughs> no. 1978? She was like, I, I, got a, at that. I got a BJ at 9.30, a Rompus <laughs> Humping at 10.15.
0: What is a Rompus Humping? <laughs> I don't
1: know. I'm trying not to be ridiculous, and by not trying to be ridiculous, I'm being ridiculous.
0: So. You are ridiculous. I am ridiculous. <laughs> But he did. He followed up the next day, and they decided to meet at midnight in front of the Alpine Motel. They headed across the street to Flanagan's Irish Pub for a drink, where he charmed her and made her feel completely at ease. He told Susan his name was Jim, and he worked with computers and had three kids. He wasn't too creative with his storytelling, because he does work with computers, and he does have three kids. (laughs) Yeah, they must have had computers in 1978.
1: They're just huge. That's, that's in my brain. I'm like, it was like the first computer was like in 1970s. I think it
0: filled a whole room back then, like a oh, computer. no, no doubt. For like, sure.
1: It was huge.
0: Yeah. So before long, Susan noticed that things were beginning to get a little hazy. Her head was swimming and she hadn't drunk that much. What was going on? Susan could vaguely remember getting into a car and riding to a different hotel in a filthy green Thunderbird. Bird, excuse me. At the hotel, she drifted in and out of consciousness throughout her sexual assault, but she seemed to remember one thing very clearly. And this is so out of the blue. He beat her for hours with a green garden hose.
1: Oh. What?
0: That's insane. Was that just in his car?
1: I mean, if I saw a dude pulling a green garden hose out of his trunk and bring it into his hotel room, i would be like,
0: it's
1: a little weird.
0: Yeah. I've never, I've, I've heard a lot of stuff doing this, but I hadn't heard that one. <laughs> she woke up the following afternoon on the floor of room 28 of the airport hotel in Hackensack, New Jersey. She was in a world of hurt, bleeding from her rectum, vagina, and her breasts. She was also covered head to toe in bruises. She looked around and noticed that her purse was missing and had been stolen. Susan immediately called the police and stumbled outside to wait for them to arrive. Now, Susan wouldn't be a lot of help with all the drugs in her system. However, investigators were finally able to recover some evidence from this hotel room crime scene. Semen was found on one of the towels. It was immediately sent off to the crime lab for testing. Again, this was way before DNA, but it was determined that the semen belonged to someone with type O blood. So it's something. Now all they have to do is find someone, another guy with type O blood in New York City. (laughs) And you got your guy. And you got your guy. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about Richard for a while and what's making him tick and why prostitutes after this break. Robert Keppel, you may remember him as one of the detectives working on the Bundy case. He also caught the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgeway, I think his name was. Yeah, he's had a life. <laughs> he's worked on several famous cases. Anyways, he co-authored a book called Serial Violence, Analysis of Modus Operandi and Signature Characteristics of Killers.
1: Which Modus Operandi, for those that don't know, that's M.O. Yeah,
0: your M.O. A, a killer's, killer's M- M.O. You in TV
1: shows and movies.
0: Great book, by the way. Highly recommend it. A little light reading. <laughs> sounds like it. <laughs> he says about Richard Cottingham, and I quote, In reality, Richard belonged to a subgroup of sexually sadistic killers who try to satisfy their self-consuming need for sexual arousal through torturing their victims. The victim's pain and terror are the stimulus to the killer, Driving them to a great greater frenzy that only serves to intensify the level of the victim's torture until his lust is satisfied. So, yeah, we're dealing with someone who doesn't kill for the thrill or doesn't. he doesn't even kill to kill. He doesn't love to kill. He literally tortures for the thrill.
1: Well, and we've come across, we've talked about a couple of them. I think Butcher Baker was one of them. Yeah, I think they, they you're right. They literally torture people at all. They literally orgasm through the torture, not the sexual Blech. act itself. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's the torture that brings them to that point. It's gross. It's but just, yeah, it's very gross.
0: I'm glad that we can't identify with that because if we could, it would be like, okay, we need to be No, I, the I couldn't imagine,
1: like, holding a frickin' later to someone's arm and being like, ooh. Like, <laughs> it's just <laughs> so really so freaking weird, dude. Patrick.
0: You're full of it today.
1: <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm a long one today. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying, I couldn't <laughs> imagine doing that to people and then, like, being sexually gratified by it. It's it's disgusting. so
0: strange. Did, wasn't it the butcher baker who would orgasm when he stole something? I
1: think it was. Remember? What?
0: And he would shoplift, and he would be like, yeah, I, re- like I was sexually satisfied when I shoplifted. I'm like, yeah, oh, was, what's wrong with y'all? Anyways. So Cottingham was able to flatter and flirt his way into gaining his victim's trust. He was very charming. So
1: he was Bundy all over again.
0: He was not handsome. He was
1: Bondi was handsome and charming.
0: I'll post a picture of him. But Cottingham was short, stocky. He wasn't ugly by any means, but he had kind of sandy blonde hair. He was just nothing stood out about him. You know what I mean? He was just average, an average dude. Yeah. So when charming, when gaining his victims' trust failed, he turned to prostitutes. He was able to lure them with money, of course, which he usually won by gambling. So his wife wouldn't miss it, you know, then he would offer them false sympathy and gain their trust by making him by making himself seem safe and non-threatening. This is the crazy aspect of his personality and his subgroup of serial killers, also known as torture killers. They feel empathy, which is quite different from just straight psychopaths like Ted Bundy that we see. So he's actually capable of feeling empathy.
1: Yeah, he's able to empathize with these people. Which is why. that brings their walls down.
0: And it's also why he's able to climax through their pain and agony because he is so empathetic.
1: It's almost like he's feeling it.
0: Yeah. So according to Jack Levin and James Allen Fox from their book Serial Murderer and the Psychology of Violent Crimes, sadistic serial killers or torture killers as they're called have to have empathy for their victims. Didn't know that. Even a heightened heightened sense of empathy because understanding their pain is what gives them so much pleasure and allows them to more easily coerce their victims. That's crazy. To me, you learn something new every day.
1: Yeah, you know, to me, it's still it's still control, right? It's
0: very much control, yeah.
1: Because not only is he in control of the situation, but now he's empathizing with their pain knowing he's wanting The, one the cause of it. He's the cause of it. He's the one inflicting it. So. God complex, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, to be clear, empathy and sympathy are not the same. We are Ooh. not complimenting
1: him. Ooh, empathy just no. means he can understand their emotion. And, and, you know.
0: According to criminal psychologist Louis Schlesinger... Death wasn't Cottingham's true motivation. Torture was, which is why some of his victims survived to eventually take the stand. Spoiler alert, he gets caught. <laughs> it was just that some victims were unlucky enough to die before Cottingham was satisfied. So so that's a quick little insight into the subgroup of serial killer that we're dealing with. Definitely different from most that we've covered up until this point, similar to Butcher Baker.
1: I mean, he's got definite similarities to yeah. a lot of them, but he's by far the most sadistic one because he's the one, like you said, they were in for the, hit, the hunt. You know, Butcher Baker was in for the hunt and the kill. He tortured mm-hmm. him because he got off on it, but this dude is not even in it for the kill. He's in it Mm-mm. for purely the torture. It's all he cares about.
0: That's all he cares about. And, and we're going to see an escalation here,
1: and right like, here. And like that guy, that, that I forget his name, said... You know, they died sometimes from the torture before. So he could the jer- yeah, basically before he could get to his point where he was done. It was, I mean, it's you just torture someone enough. Eventually, they're gonna part die. of it. Yeah. yeah, depending on how bad it is.
0: Death is almost just like a.
1: And he's chemically inducing these girls, so he, he's not like a some of them, pharmacist. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it could be the drugs that killed him, and then they were still tortured. It could have been the torture that killed him. Strangulation
0: sometimes it could have been any of the
1: things. So yeah.
0: So after his horrific, a horrific assault on Susan Grieger, who survived. Richard waited almost a whole year before he struck again, or at least that we know of. And that brings us to the unfortunate fortunate story of the headless young woman in the hotel room. You remember that from when we started? How can you yeah, forget, I really right? Yeah, can not forget that story? <laughs> Holy shit. So the two women discovered were both young prostitutes. One was 23-year-old Kuwaiti immigrant Didi Gudarzi, She was temporarily doing sex work only to make ends meet and to support herself and her infant son. Remember her, she comes back later. Uh, The other girl, the other young girl found deceased is only known as Jane Doe. Unfortunately, no one has ever been able to identify her. She is thought to have been in her late teens or early 20s. Pictures of her clothing were later released to the public in hopes that someone could identify her based on those. But nothing ever came of it, unfortunately. The two young women were lured to the hotel room by Cottingham, and they were likely happy to get off the street for a while to get warm, seeing as how December 2nd, 1979 was an uncharacteristically cold winter's day for New York.
1: I you're you're from Texas. I'm I'm a Texas girl, so, so. I wanna I wanna highlight how uncharacteristically cold in New York is. Like it's freaking cold, dude. <laughs> I grew up up there. I grew up in Philly, New Jersey. I Went to school in Rhode Island. Cold is cold.
0: I want y'all to know that when it gets below forty, here school shut down. So,
1: no, if, if there's a threat of ice tomorrow, the schools literally like, yeah, we're not doing it. There's a hurricane coming. They're like, cool. We'll, we'll monitor,
0: but it's no big deal. Guys. It's
1: about to have some freezing rain tomorrow, and the whole the whole city shuts down. All of Houston.
0: Oh, it's so funny. It's so true. Like your mom when she moved here, she she was like, "There's a tornado warning. Everybody needs to go to the back, bath- like lock themselves in the bathroom." I'm like, "Why?"
1: We're like, Dude, it's the "We have <laughs> tornado
0: here. warnings all the time."
1: <laughs> it's even worse. I lived in Oklahoma, so I'm just like, "Okay, whatever." <laughs> no
0: biggie. <laughs> so both women, once inside the room, were of course raped and tortured. Shla- sh- Shallow slash marks were found covering their bodies, especially on and around each of their breasts. No knife wounds penetrated their body, which, according to Dr. Louis Napolitano, a forensic pathologist who was the medical examiner at that time, likely meant that he was teasing them,
1: mm-hmm. letting
0: the girls know how powerful he was. Mm-hmm. He was
1: God. So it's, it's, it's torture through fear at that mm-hmm. point. It's not actual... A little bit of pain, but it's like, I'm only teasing you right now. I'm not really causing you pain so you know what I can do. Again, it's 100%. Torture through fear.
0: Unfortunately, after both girls were dead, Cottingham found this right here is where we're going to see the escalation. So pay attention. Quiz later. Just kidding. No quiz, but it's a good part. Unfortunately, after both girls were dead, Cottingham found that he was unable to attain the level of satisfaction he reckoned he would be able to. So this is why we see an escalation. Okay,
1: so I get it now. This is where the beheading comes in.
0: That is why he decided to remove the victim's heads and hands and place them in a duffel bag. Then he poured accelerant on what was left of their bodies, lit them on fire, gathered his duffel bag filled with the girls' heads and hands, and left the hotel room nonchalantly, leaving the hotel premises as if heading to the gym before work.
1: With a bag full of heads and shit
0: their heads and hands would never be recovered to this day. Detectives would later tell reporters that the crime scene had been thoroughly swept clean of any and all clues and was one of the most effectively swept crime scenes they had ever seen.
1: Oh, he, I mean that, it was on fire.
0: That also got rid of a lot of evidence. Yeah. He was interviewed publicly as um, the detective... Was interviewed publicly as the whole city was obviously in a frenzy after this specific crime. And it's hard to believe. But Richard's co-workers would later say that Cottingham actually joked about being the one responsible for the murders.
1: See, that's my point earlier. Like, he's joking about like these girls going missing and being strangled. That's one thing. He's now joking about
0: I'm the one that did it. I'm
1: the one that did it. And you're talking about cutting off two girls' heads after raping and torturing and then burning the hotel. You're like all, the
0: I, all I can think about is that people maybe tune him out at this point because think about it. a guy comes in and talks about like bondage and everyday, you know, and stuff like that at work mm-hmm. and they're looking at him. This is not some stud, you know?
1: No, they're looking at so him. So they're like, you know, okay. They're like, whatever.
0: And you do that for 20 years and you're like, yeah, You're but when you liar. claim
1: one day after a bunch of girls had their heads cut off and building lit on fire after they were sodomized, raped, and tortured, I'm going to be like, "And you claim it? That's yeah. Still, a f- I don't care if you've been talking about doing a weird S and M." And no one life. called anyone.
0: However, Detective Greco had little reason to connect the murders of Marianne Carr or any of the previous girls to the dismemberment and mutilation of the two girls in the motel. Serial killers often escalate, but the only real similarities. Were the mutilations to the breast region? I believe so. In a city like New York, like a, a couple of murders years apart with breast mutilation, they're not going to connect them necessarily.
1: Uh, That's a necessarily, pretty necessarily, but a still, minor
0: thing, especially in a sexual assault, I guess. Yeah, yeah, but at
1: the same time, it's still a similarity that is very odd. Very specific.
0: It's very odd. It's not like
1: he used the same kind of knife. It's not like it was the same kind of gun that was used in all the murders. And they don't have a database either, so. No, but this is still a very specific kind of torture. It's like, it's very rare that you hear. And all in
0: hotels. There's,
1: that's what I'm saying. (laughs) There's a lot of similarities that are like, it doesn't necessarily like concrete evidence tied together, but it makes you look at like the cases from four years ago and this case here, and you're like, "Mm, those are very similar. Yep. Besides the head's missing.
0: Yeah, exactly. Forensic uh, psychologist Lewis Schlesinger says about 70% of serial sexual murderers will experiment at a crime scene and do something very, very different with one victim that they had not done with the others, such as cut their eyes out, etc. That was just an example. When an investigator without extensive experience, he said, in this field looks at it, one victim looks very different that they're led to believe, at least from their own experience, that this has to be someone else. And that is incorrect. Yeah, that's, That was that, a
1: quote. That's what I'm saying, though. Like, yeah. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying, is you do these two murders, the only difference is the heads, heads were removed mm-hmm. in, on the last ones. Everything else is And fire.
0: To, the fire. Yeah. And the
1: fire. But the things that, you know, in a hotel room, you know, breasts are mutilated. Yeah. Very specific things. It's very,
0: yeah. But I think Grieco wasn't
1: no, trained but, in this exactly, kind of thing. You know, yeah. You know, is dead on saying that you look at the two and you're like oh this is different this is much more escalated this is not to say escalated this is much different heads were removed there was a fire it's not the same person but That's it's the, the same case. thing you just everything see an escalation is, of it everything is so similar exactly
0: you have to almost be looking for escalations every crime scene if there, you're there's if always going to be yeah
1: if you actually go back and listen to every crime scene you've ever described on 90% of our podcast there's always an escalation Every crime scene escalates to the next one mm-hmm. very small very minor I mean, one guy was killing people. The next thing you know, he took her head off and had a whole bunch of mirrors around. Oh
0: God, that one was a doozy. Gainesville Ripper, guys, Gainesville go back and Ripper.
1: listen. <laughs> that nuts. But same mo on everyone.
0: Yeah,
1: it just escalated on everybody. Right. One. Ted Bundy, same mo escalates.
0: So just to help the police out a little with connecting the dots, Cottingham would soon leave another hellacious hotel room murder scene for investigators to discover. Because
1: that's what he. Fucking does. That's what he does now. So, yeah.
0: On May 5th of 1980, a housekeeper at the Quality Inn Motel in Hasbro Heights, New Jersey, was cleaning room 132. She noticed a horrific smell that she just could not seem to clean out of the room. She <laughs> decided to give the room one final pass with a vacuum when her vacuum cleaner hit something rather large under the bed. Mm. When she investigated further, she was startled to find the naked, handcuffed body of a young, dead girl. The woman would later be identified as 19-year-old Valerie Ann Street, a beautiful, petite, young brunette that had clearly been through hell before she died. She had been tortured. The handcuffs must have been so tied around her wrist because she had deep red gouges that investigators said resembled gory bracelets. She was covered in bruises, slashes, and gouges, but most notably, a bite mark had nearly severed her left nipple. God. No other hotel guests had heard her screamed, and that was likely due to her mouth being taped. Yeah, tape residue was found on her mouth. No mm-hmm. tape, but residue.
1: She's not screaming from that stuff. She's obviously gagged her tape. Yeah.
0: It was after Valerie's murder that the evidence finally started to add up. You see, this was the second death of a woman found on the premises of this very hotel. That's when they're like, "Okay, this isn't a coincidence,"
1: because it it's the same co- hotel. I must say, it hasn't been a coincidence. No, yet. but
0: but you know, it was between because he's not just killing in New York like this. He's killing in New Jersey. He's killing everywhere. Yeah, but he's also not New York targeting and New like
1: different districts. The Biltmore in New York. When he's no. doing this, he's looking at quality. I mean, he's looking at. Back motor then, lodges in motor lodges that are $50 <clears throat> for the night.
0: So it took a while, but we're getting somewhere.
1: <laughs> but it's a definite pattern.
0: So we've seen with serial killers time and time again that they have cooling-off periods. And that cooling-off period tends to get shorter and shorter the more comfortable and the more cocky they get. Yep. And maybe the more invincible they feel. Well,
1: it's a God complex. Yeah. They're better and smarter than the cops. No one's going to catch them. Exactly. So they're going to do it more and more and more to satiate it.
0: Well, Cottingham was no different. His cooling-off period had decreased significantly. So we know he tortured and killed Valerie Street on May 5th and 6th, right? Well, just six days later, there's no more waiting a year anymore. I was
1: about to say, he's waited years before.
0: So six days later, on May 12th, he dumped young cocktail waitress Pamela Weisenfeld in a parking lot in Teaneck, New Jersey. She had been drugged, beaten, and her breasts were savagely mutilated. (laughs) Then three days later, on May 15th, firefighters were again called to a hotel, a different hotel this time, called the Seville, on East 29th in New Jersey. Unfortunately, the young woman had been mutilated and beaten before she was killed and set on fire. Here's another escalation. Her head and hands had been left intact, however. Her breasts had been neatly sliced off and arranged on the headboard behind her. What the? Mm Mm-hmm. Every woman is collectively holding themselves right now. <laughs> Cause I am.
1: <laughs> every woman is collectively like <laughs> on just the way that every man did when they heard about the Bobbit case. Oh, you know so what I mean? True. Like <clears throat> it reminds me of a Gaines dude. It reminds me of the rip Ripper again. It's crazy.
0: So this is another escalation. Oh,
1: absolutely.
0: <laughs> this is this is a horror movie scene. This is a horror movie scene. Oh, this is
1: this is something from like I don't know. A
0: Rob Zombie movie. Like It's one of those.
1: like a horrible like Jason movie or something like that.
0: (sighs) Fingerprints allowed the young, unfortunate victim to later be identified as 25-year-old Gene Rayner, a prostitute who worked in the New York York Times, the Times Square area. Yet another victim of the Times Square Ripper or the Torso Killer, as he was now being publicly referred to.
1: I finally understand why they call him the Torso Killer. In the beginning, you remember I was like, what, did he not kill the limbs? Yeah. No, because they couldn't call him... The titty carver. <laughs> <laughs> the titty carver. I'm just saying, like, his MO is mutilating breasts. So you can't give him a name associated with that back in the 80s and 70s.
0: Well, too, when you cut the head off some, I thought, I didn't even think about that. I think it's because it, when you cut the head off somebody and the hands and the head, then you're left with just the torso. You
1: see, and that but, was the
0: most remarkable case, you know? Yeah,
1: but to me, it's the torso killer because he's mutilating their torso. Mm. That's the common denominator through everything.
0: That's true. So by now, you've probably forgotten, because it's easy to forget, that Richard has a whole ass wife and three kids at home. <laughs> yeah,
1: Richard does have a whole family that I completely <laughs> forgot about. I'm not even gonna lie to you.
0: Well, April of 1980, his wife was finally like, you know what, bitch, I've had enough, and I'm getting a divorce. She cited extreme cruelty. And no. then she mentioned that... Her husband had refused to have sex with her since 1976.
1: Because he's out raping and killing every other week.
0: By then it was possible that the kind of sex he needed wasn't the kind that she would ever be willing to give him because he's twisted.
1: And maybe he wasn't, <laughs> he didn't want to put her through that too. She She's empathetic. Uh, I mean, yeah. It's not about the sex, it's about the torture.
0: Yep, exactly. She also claimed that he often left the family without any money and would, wouldn't come home often. She then alleged that Richard was a member of a swingers club. That, oh, yeah, and that he consistently was unfaithful to her, both with men and women.
1: 1980s saying you're part of a swingers club is like you just got outed in society.
0: Yeah, and a bisexual swingers club.
1: Yes, no, that's a bad thing to do.
0: This kind of upheaval at home left Richard pissed. Oh, he fuck was yeah, that dude pissed. Was mad. Yeah, he's a narcissist and a psychopath with a God complex. You don't cross him.
1: No, you don't. No, you just shut up, stay at home, take care of the kids. Mm-hmm. I come when I want to. I, I come home when I want to.
0: Yeah, you never come with me.
1: <laughs> Not since 1976 with her. <laughs> he comes around when he wants to. He leaves when he wants to kind of thing.
0: So you want to guess what he did to cope?
1: He fucking killed someone. <laughs>
0: However, this will be his last. I'm sorry. So. He
1: didn't kill someone. He tortured someone because it's not about the killing. It's the torture. It's 100% about the torture.
0: Guys, this is going to be his last victim. So,
1: Thankfully. Yeah. Good Lord.
0: And then, boy, do I have a story to tell you.
1: Well, let's get to it, the okay. lady.
0: Leslie Ann O'Dell had been working the corner of Lexington Avenue and 25th, a block away from where they had filmed Marilyn Monroe's famous subway great scene in the movie The Seven Year Itch. We all know it,
1: it and the I just air watched. And she holds down her dress like.
0: Ew-hoo. Yeah, and I just last weekend I just watched the Maryland documentary on Netflix. Great, go watch it. So I had to add that in. Well, Leslie unfortunately had been having some issues. She was one of many girls traveling from Washington to New York in search of success. She was naive and full of hope when a pimp picked her up and put her to work at his corner. She had been there for about a week. When she met Cottingham.
1: And that's what's so sad about it. I know. Is that's what they did. And then they mm-hmm. and still pretty much do it. They do it. Uh, not like back then where everyone went to LA or New York to become a star or be at Broadway or to be in movies and pimps would just pick up these girls that had nothing and all that stuff and be like basically force them to have sex for money. And then they'd so just be sad. stuck in the life.
0: Well, Cottingham worked his usual charm. Even taking her out for a drink and buying her a steak dinner where he listened sympathetically about her difficult situation. So she was thankful. He played upon her desperation, offering to take her to a bus terminal in New Jersey after their date so that she could run away and escape. Hmm. He was like her knight in shining armor. This poor girl had very little hope and no money to escape, so she was so grateful for his generosity.
1: That's his torture right there.
0: Yep. She agreed to have sex with him for $100 in exchange for his kindness,
1: essentially. He's not not even... He's going to physically torture her later. He's emotionally, to- he's setting her up for emotional torture right now.
0: Cottingham drove them to a ha- Hasbrook Heights Quality Inn Motor Hotel, where he got a room. The same hotel where he stuffed Valerie and Street underneath. He doesn't branch out much. <laughs> he doesn't. He has his areas that he likes to kill. Where he stuffed Valerie and Street under the bed weeks earlier. Same one. Unfortunately, the clerk there didn't recognize Cottingham. That's what I'm wondering. Do y'all recognize these people? But no, they didn't. I
1: mean, if it's been a couple of years, you probably don't recognize the guy that. Recognized. <laughs> days later, you found a body. You probably don't remember the person who mm, checked in.
0: Let's see. This happened. No, this was in 1980. So, yeah, I guess it is like three years later.
1: But it also, you also don't know how many people come in and out of there. You know oh, I mean?
0: probably a lot. Yeah. So Cottingham and Leslie entered the room, and he offered to give Leslie a much-needed massage before the pair got down to business. She gladly accepted and rolled over onto her stomach. Cottingham took his jacket off, took a small gun out of his pants' waistband, and tossed it under the bed. He straddled her back as if to begin the massage, but instead pulled a knife and held it to her throat while handcuffing her wrists together behind her back. He then began his horrific torture routine telling her that she deserved every bit of pain that was coming to her. He flipped her over and made his first cut and told her that he would soon be burning her breast, genitals, and anus. Can you imagine being told that?
1: Oh, fuck that. Just kill me. (laughs) Just kill Kill me. Just fucking kill me. Just kill me. (laughs) Don't even, what the fuck?
0: (sighs) He proceeded to bite her and tear at her, causing her such pain that she faded in and out of consciousness. But he would wake her up with cold water and a washcloth only to continue the torture. Remember, he gets off by inflicting pain, so he can't do that if his victims passed out.
1: Yeah, and he's at the point where he has to inflict so much pain that they a yeah. you know, shock basically puts you out.
0: Over the next several hours, Leslie was brutally raped. Her screams got louder and louder and more desperate, which only excited Cottingham more. She would later recount on the wit- witness stand that he would tell her to shut up, and that since the other prostitutes before her had taken it, that she had to take it too. If you remember, Cottingham usually taped his victim's mouth shut so that they couldn't scream. But her screams excited him so much that he neglected to do it this time. He's
1: escalated. Thankfully. He's escalated, but the screams this are now a good being thing. satiation.
0: Anyways, at one point, Leslie's hands were not handcuffed, so she took this opportunity to dive off the bed and go for the gun. Unfortunately, the gun was a dud and it was a fake. Nancy, Nancy, Leslie screamed in terror as Cottingham grabbed the knife and started to come after her. This alerted another guest in the hotel who immediately called the front desk. And within minutes, police were banging on the door of room 117. After several minutes of knocking, the door opened slightly and a terrified Leslie stood there. Cottingham had instructed her to say that she was fine, and he positioned himself right behind her with a knife to her back. When they asked if Leslie was okay again, she said yes, but her eyes darted right to left, indicating that there was a problem. Cottingham knew this was it. He was caught, so he attempted to escape out the back door, his bag of torture devices in tow. However, he was apprehended by the police before he got very far.
1: Good. Fuck this
0: dude. Police would later say that at the time of his arrest, he had. Tape, handcuffs, a leather gag, two slave collars, a switchblade, a replica pistol, and a stockpile of prescription pills.
1: I think the thing about this that that fucks me up the most is the replica pistol.
0: The re- replica pistol. I, I totally. He doesn't want anything tied back to him if he loses it no, or something. That's
1: not what it is. He throws the pistol on the bed. Mm-hmm. It's a replica pistol. He gets off. On the fact that they try to go for the gun. And it's fake.
0: Oh, it's the torture. That.
1: It's the emotional torture of it. They think they're safe. So they grab the gun. They're here. It's fake. The fear comes back. The screams come back.
0: I didn't think of that. I just thought that if he needed it.
1: I mean obviously it's like you can point it at someone.
0: Yeah it's there for an
1: option. Because he has a bag of options we've but seen. it's the way he told me <clears> how he just <throat> threw it on the bed and was like nonchalant about it. Like, yeah. There's the gun if you want it.
0: Well he kicked it under the bed.
1: You said you just threw it
0: on top of the. I said under. Oh,
1: either way, to me, it's like it's like a. I might be way off.
0: No, that could be. It. Listen, I, I don't think anybody has this guy like figured saying, out. It's,
1: I can't figure <laughs> this dude out, so I'm I'm grasping at shit over here. No, it's, this is nuts. I'm just glad he's caught. Absolutely.
0: So his gig was up, and the torso killer had been caught. So at the station, after Cottingham was read his rights, he claimed that sex. Oh, Sex with Leslie was consensual, and he paid her $180, and the agreement was that he could do whatever he wanted with her. I don't think that almost biting off her nipple counts, but what else? Yeah. Detective Greco would later say of the interrogation, he was sitting there with us, and I was holding his hand, trying to get him to confess. His eyes welled up, and he said, I have a problem with women. But.
1: <laughs> oh.
0: But that was as far as his confession really got. Also, there's a reason that Greco played that sympathetic game. And it wasn't because he cared about him. Yeah. Trust me. Uh, according to them, they knew that Cottingham was just a narcissist and that oh, nothing playing with, was his fault. Yeah, they're
1: playing. It was they had to, to play to along. Yeah. Saying, I'm so sorry. Yeah. To you.
0: yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I know the game. I know you do. I don't. I'm like, why Why wouldn't touch them? I'd punch them in the face.
1: You don't want to, but you're basically making them comfortable. You're sympathy. You're playing to their ego. Yeah. So that they talk to you. They open up.
0: However, although admitting that he may have some kind of problem, at no time did he admit fault of any kind. He did say that the sex may have been rough, but it was only because he was so stressed about his upcoming divorce. So, like, it's everybody else's fault. It's
1: not mine. Of course. Narcissist.
0: <laughs> yeah. He said no more than that before lawyering up. Conning's ham defense attorney wasn't impressed with him. He didn't appreciate that he wouldn't take any responsibility, actually, to try to minimize the impact, given the giant pile of evidence facing him against Leslie. And we're just talking about Leslie.
1: Yeah, he's. I mean, like, dude, I'm just trying that to... one alone. Like, yeah, it's it's open and shut. It's a joke. Like to even try it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So his defense attorney's like,
0: "Look, the best I can just get you. Say you
1: did it." <laughs> And you're and sorry. And I can get you down <laughs> on a sentence. And he's like, oh, I didn't do it. I didn't you do know, anything. Dude, of, there's like a 900% chance. You know what I mean? It's just, it's crazy that they're still that arrogant at that point. They're like, I oh, didn't do it.
0: So the police knew at this point that they had more murders to link this guy to. And they needed more than just Leslie's horrible assault. And the connection to Marion Carr. Because it's the same hotel. Detective Grieco obtained a search warrant for Cottingham's residence. Oh, and, shit. Guys.
1: Oh, shit. Guys.
0: Okay, just remember he steals stuff. Remember he steals their purses and stuff like that. He steals their fucking heads. Well, I think he disposed of them. That was for evidence' sake. He later said, but remember he steals like their clothing, their purses. Yeah, there? No one had
1: their purses or anything with them.
0: Yeah. So Detective Greco, he got a search warrant. Greco would later say, "This is a quote." We wound up searching the premises, and he had a private room downstairs in the basement area. He wouldn't let his children or wife in there. It was basically a locked basement. They called it – he called it his study, by the way. His trophies. <laughs> what they found would horrify them. The man had literal death souvenirs so that he could relive the experiences. This is sounding more and more like the Butcher Baker, isn't it? They're identical. Well, when I read this part, I'm like, oh, my God. There's so that's much serial killers.
1: Se- Most serial killers that kill for – you know the ones that are just absolutely sick, mm-hmm. and just kill to kill, those are different. But the ones that kill for a purpose like him and Butcher Baker, there's so much similarities, Right. They always take trophies because they, their urges need to be reminded of what they did. Their narcissism, their power, needs to be reminded.
0: At one point, Janet would say that he would spend hours down there
1: because that's how he would go and relive it. Yeah, well, you know that's how they cope. Mm -hmm. That's how they feed the urge
0: Mm -hmm. when they aren't out killing. When they aren't so, he's not Mm -hmm.
1: out killing for a time period. He's going to be in there reliving his kills because that satiates that, that that need or that urge. And so he can't do that anymore and he's going to go kill someone again. It's gross. But that's why they do it.
0: Detectives would find, for example, in his little trophy room, Valerie Street's tiny stuffed koala bear that she always carried with her along with her earrings. Jewelry and clothing of his tortured and murder victims were everywhere, serving as tokens of his accomplishments. Based on these findings, charges started piling up against Cottingham in various jurisdictions all around. One more thing, amongst all of Cot- <laughs> amongst all of Cottingham's trophies, detectives found a bunch of copied house keys. And they were like, what the fuck are these? What the hell? They turned out to be the keys to his co-worker's homes at the insurance agency. He was stealing bastards? them. He was stealing them and making copies of them, and then he would go out and break in and rob them.
1: Yeah, I'm like, I feel bad for saying I just call them dumb bastards, and I feel bad for that. But these are the people that are listening to this dude, like, literally say, I cut their heads off and took them home. Like, that was me that did that shit. And he's stealing your keys, going to your houses, ripping them off.
0: Oh, my gosh, I know. After surviving victims, Karen Schlitt and Susan Geiger, you remember them? Mm -hmm. They were able to ID Cottingham in a lineup. And that's when the jury indicted him on charges that included two murders and one attempted murder and three kidnappings. He maintained his innocence, of course, and he entered a plea of not guilty. He's smart,
1: <laughs> everybody else. He's a god. I
0: hate him. Awaiting his trial, he attempted to commit suicide three times.
1: Because he knows what the fuck's about to happen.
0: Guys. I'm gonna try not to laugh at this because it's not funny, but I, I can't help it. <laughs> one of the, One of the times he smashed his eyeglasses to attempted he attempted to use a broken glass to slit his wrist, but not only was his suicide attempt a fail, but he was left without prescription glasses for his next try.
1: Yeah, I guess this is all you have. They
0: didn't replace, it, but he literally couldn't see without his glasses.
1: Yeah, but they're not going to replace if he just tried to kill himself. I know. They're not going to be like, "Oh, here's <laughs> another pair to try." Dumb S- shit.
0: Stupid. Back, back, at,
1: <laughs> dumb shit. You dumbass, dude.
0: <laughs> back at his office at Blue Cross, his coworkers were absolutely horrified, as you can probably imagine.
1: Well, first of all, he was <laughs> copying their keys.
0: Never once did they give a second thought to anything that came out of this guy's mouth. And to hear that it could have all been true left them speechless.
1: And on top of that, you had the creep factor that mm-hmm. he was copying their house keys. So this dude, it was yeah. talking about this crazy shit. You leave work you're like, yeah, I don't want to go near dude, Richard. Dude, you robbed me? No, it's not even that. It's like, I don't even want to go near Richard at work. He's weird. He's this in my house. has access to your house. Anytime. Mm-hmm. And the shit he was being weird about was real. Yeah. I would
0: just... Implode.
1: We'd have bars on everything. I'd have a mounted machine gun in the living room pointed at the door. Like, fuck that. When I'm playing that game.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now for his trial or trials. Because Cottingham committed his crimes all over the region, Cottingham faced four separate trials in different jurisdictions, both in New York and New Jersey.
1: I was about to say, yeah, whether city, county, state, it's it's in two different states, multiple counties.
0: Yeah, exactly. So.
1: Surprised the FBI didn't get involved since it's overstate lines.
0: I am too, actually. But I didn't say anything regarding that. I can hardly believe I'm about to say this, but Janet, our girl Janet, his wife.
1: <clears throat> Don't tell me she stood by his eyes
0: she heard of all the allegations against him and she decided to withdraw her divorce. What the? And stand by her man. She even went as far as to testify during one of his trials and provide him an alibi. So fuck you, Janet. <laughs>
1: Fuck you. Yeah, seriously, fuck you. What the... In all,
0: Cottingham was found guilty in 1984 of five murders and various other kidnappings and assaults. He is sentenced to more than 200 years in prison, according to the New York Times. But this would not be the last time we hear from Richard Cottingham.
1: Why not? Oh, no, no, no. He's going to fade from the spotlight, and his narcissism is going to need him to come back out somehow.
0: So, in 2010... 2010. Mm-hmm. Richard confessed to yet another murder, the 1967 murder of Nancy Vogel. You remember Nancy? Yeah, the, one that the went first cold one we like covered.
1: Four years.
0: The housewife on her way to bingo? Yeah. Well, she had been killed long before Richard was on anyone's radar and had been one of the oldest cold cases in Bergen County. Cottingham went before Bergen County Superior Court and pled guilty. Surprisingly, offering Nancy's surviving brother and two children an apology. This was the first time he would ever offer any admission of guilt for any of his crimes. By the way, I later saw an article that said that he did plead guilty, but the judge made him turn around and apologize to the family. And on his way out, he told his lawyer, I'm never fucking doing that again. Like, he was mad. He didn't want to do that.
1: Yeah, because... So I see.
0: To... I've seen two two accounts.
1: Okay. Whatever. So he confessed to it, and the judge was like, "No, fuck you." Turn around my and my apologize. Ever. Yeah. And he was like, "Yeah, I'm never confessing again. I'm not doing that shit. I'm better than them."
0: <sighs> he received a life sentence to be served concurrently with his other existing sentences. That's
1: bullshit. That's bullshit. But what? Concurrently, you know what that means, right? Back to back. No, that's consecutively. Concurrently means he's serving his life sentence while he's serving his other sentences. So,
0: well, he's never getting out. I know
1: he's got a life sentence, mm-hmm. but so if you had two 20 year sentences and you mm-hmm. were serving them concurrently, as you serve them, they count towards both. Whereas if you have consecutive 20 year sentences, you serve 20, then you serve the next.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. Concurrently means they're serving at the same time. That's why I'm saying it's bullshit. It should be, a, it should be the consecutive, consecutive. Life sentence. So, like, After you serve everything you do, you have a life sentence. So like an extreme fuck you, you're not getting out of jail, go die.
0: Oh, that's upsetting. I was already pissed.
1: That's why I said it's fucked up.
0: But we're still not done. In 2021, so last year, Cottingham confessed and pled guilty to the abductions, rapes, and murders of 16-year-old Lorraine Marie Kelly and 17-year-old Mary Ann Pryor. He received two more concurrent life sentences. Two more.
1: I mean, I, understand, I think I do understand the concurrent life sentences because...
0: He has, like, 12 against him right now, so...
1: Well, he's got multiple life sentences, and he was born in, like, what, the 40s, I think it was, like, 1940-something, 46 or 46, like yeah. So he's clearly 80 years old at this point.
0: He's 75, about 76, no?
1: So I understand the concurrent, because they're not going to give him 6,000 years in prison. Mm-hmm. They're basically like, you can serve them all now, but mm-hmm. your first sentence that you're serving with that is, like... 40 years. You're not getting out. You're not going to live to be 120. You know what I mean? But it's still, I would still just add it as consecutive, be like, fuck you, and make an extra fuck you. You're never getting out kind of thing.
0: So, one more thing. I was actually going to end it here because effectively it ends. But then I found in researching.
1: But is he still alive in prison right now? Yeah, he's still alive. Where's he at? Like Rikers?
0: Oh, uh, blah, 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 blah. I or can't.
1: Didn't say? I'm just curious because...
0: No, it didn't say... No, because he has to move from prison to prison because he's indifferent. So it's between a few.
1: That's also he gets transferred. Why he, that's probably also why mm-hmm. Does he actually get transferred? Mm-hmm. Or does one have... Mm-mm. Normally one would just have it and they can currently serve in the other places.
0: I think in states, but he goes between New Jersey and New York. Okay. After I was finished, I was just seeing if I missed anything, as I do at mm-hmm. the end. I found out that Cottingham had established a relationship with one of his victims' daughters. Do you remember? Okay, okay um, so Jennifer Weiss is the name of the daughter. She is the daughter of Didi Gudarzi. Remember, she was a Kuwaiti mm-hmm. immigrant, She's found, Kuwaiti. beheaded, beheaded, yeah. beheaded, beheaded, one of flame. <laughs> one of the
1: ones you started the story yeah, with.
0: Yeah, yeah, started the story with her. Well, she apparently reached out to Cottingham when she searched for her biological mother. She was obviously motherless and put up for adoption.
1: When she got older. She searched for him and found out this and her she, mother was killed because mm-hmm. he was the dude that did it. Yeah.
0: And she learned that her mother was a victim of Cottingham's. She wanted to know where her mother's head was buried. During her time with Cottingham, they established somewhat of a relationship. She does not like him, but they have a rapport, I guess you you could say.
1: Well, he's friendly with her. She, visit, she She's probably the only person that visits with him.
0: So, according to a 2021 Rolling Stones article, currently, Vronsky, he's an investigator, uh, and Weiss, they're kind of working together with Cottingham. Uh, they claim they've gotten at least eight more confessions out of Cottingham to murders he committed in New York, and they're waiting to make them official. So, it might happen this year or the next.
1: Holy shit. Eight
0: more. Um, So, it's possible he may be... Convicted in many more cold cases soon. That's insane. Police, some some police who worked on his case who are now retired claim that he is responsible for up to 100 homicides. Yes. I, Which wish, I honestly
1: wouldn't be surprised. Would make
0: him the most prolific serial killer in
1: history anywhere.
0: I have, almost. Yeah.
1: I mean, who would have more than that anywhere in the world?
0: There's a few Russian guys that
1: are in record history and recorded history.
0: Yeah, there's one guy in Russia that, I mean, more than a hundred. Yeah, he's bad, and all his life he got away with it for a while. Uh, so he, of course, uh, by the way, he said in exchange for all this information that he would let her know where his mom, her mom's head was, and he never did, because he's Richard Cottingham.
1: He's a douche, yeah.
0: <laughs> As of now, Richard Cottingham is still alive and well. I believe he's seventy. Well, he was seventy five in two thousand or twenty twenty one, so he's seventy six now. So let's see if he confesses anymore. However, his health is reportedly declining, so they need to hurry up and get him talking ASAP because there's families out there that need answers. But
1: they need closure for something. They they closure. happened closure.
0: Years ago, and in Nancy's case, forty.
1: That's insane. I know know it took 40 years, but she got closure. There's probably some out there that he's guilty for Mm -hmm. or guilty of that to this day don't have closure on it. Even those eight that he supposedly uh, confessed to, that's not, those people don't have closure.
0: But he's never going to see the light of day ever again. So we can take solace in that. (laughs) Yeah, we don't like him. So that is the story of Richard Cottingham, the torso killer. What do you think?
1: How do you do this? Like, you escalate every week. I'm like, damn, that was the most fucked up episode we've ever done. And then the next week, you're like, I'm excited for this one. I'm like, cool, let's start. And by the end of it, I'm just staring at you like, what my boobs the hurt. Absolutely hell is going on. Anybody
0: there? else have boob pain right now?
1: <laughs> I, I currently don't know. I do. Damn, <laughs> that's a crazy ass story though.
0: He's crazy. That story is new
1: case. That's just, and it's. You know, the way you ended the, the extra research, I'm sitting here wondering, like, how, like, there could have been 100 total. There could have been 150 total. This dude was literally doing nothing but this stuff, and the only ones that he got called out for that we know of. Yeah. The ones that he let survive.
0: Well, if, let me see, because I hadn't looked at the numbers. If he killed the two teenage girls, okay, six, uh, 16, 17-year-olds.
1: Mm-hmm. He, was, he was convicted of five.
0: I I wonder if that was before Nancy Vogel.
1: That was before.
0: Well, now it's up to twelve. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, eight. Because he was he was convicted of five, and there were three more added on.
1: Yeah, and then there's the eight more that he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And they say upwards of 100. a hundred. Jesus. That leaves you with eighty five.
0: And that that no one knows about. There's you know. Eighty four. They know he has relationships with a few of these retired investigators. Not many. He doesn't like cops, obviously. But, no, and but he, also
1: probably has a, he probably also has relationships, um, you know, with the prison workers because they develop yeah a relationship. I'm not gonna name names or anything, but I had I had a buddy that was in Iraq and was basically a guard at Saddam's prison, and he like didn't become friends with Saddam. No,
0: but you develop a rapport. You, you have to survive together.
1: Yeah, you develop a rapport with that person. And he did. He developed a rapport with Saddam Hussein. When he was 19 years old,
0: I wouldn't develop. Over, yeah, I would. I would have. To, I mean, he was but, just doing
1: his job, and his job is literally standing next to this dude's cell door.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have to talk, right?
1: Yeah, you talking when he wants to see something. You have executives or high level, you know, police departments or even in the military. You have high level that are like, "Hey, if he wants something, come get me, or if he says something, come get me." Yeah,
0: so you, talk you have dumb. to
1: interact with him. You can't just sit there and be like, "Mm mm."
0: So. Guys, next week, I'm so excited for our episode. It's going to be something different than we've ever done before.
1: Which is weird because we've done some crazy killers, Sailing Witch trial.
0: We have. I'm going to blow Pat's mind. I'm going to, it's so hard to keep this secret from him because he's going to just.
1: You keep saying this and it's driving me nuts because I literally have no idea what it is. He's gonna, I know what the week after it is. <clears> but he's going to pee
0: pee in his pants. He's so excited.
1: I haven't pee pee'd in my pants since I was like, how old am I now? 40? It's like, like 38. Like last week.
0: Okay, let's go. I'm totally
1: freaking kidding on that.
0: Let's go and let these kids get back to
1: it. Yep, we love y'all. We love you. Hey, be good to each other. Yeah, be
0: good to each other. we'll see you again next week. And thanks for joining us. Bye.